Luke chapter 16. All right, I'm going to warn you. This is one of the strangest passages in the Bible. All right? So, try to follow along as I read. And if you can tell me what it means, I'm going to let you come up here and preach it. Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. And he also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Verse 5. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One who is faithful uh, in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then, when you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray and let's ask for God's help as we study this text this morning. Father, we come before you recognizing that this is your word. uh, There are some challenging, confusing themes in here. We do ask God that you would straighten us out this morning, that you would Uh, Help us understand clearly uh, the the general meaning of this passage so that we might be faithful with what you've given us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is more fun to give away somebody else's money, isn't it? If I gave you $500 and I said, I said, hey, I just want you to use this money to bless other people. You'd be like, okay, this is fun. And you're going to give $500 uh, to this cause and you're going to uh, buy some groceries for this elderly individual and you're going to buy some gas for the guy at the gas station who's sitting there with no gas in his car, and you're going to enjoy giving away money that has been given to you to bless others. Now, how much different if I give you $500 with no stipulations, and I say, hey, this is for you? All of a sudden, we get closed off. We get stingy. We get brittle. And someone suggests, hey, what if, what if you give 20 of that to this cause? This is mine. Back off. Don't touch what is mine. I want to preach to you this morning on this question. Is it mine or is it God's? It's a simple question. 
is what I have mine, or is it God's? And thank you, Tony, you finished my sermon for me. (laughs) Is it mine, or is it God's? I need to teach teach you a new word if you don't know this word, and that is the word steward. Everybody say steward. Steward. Some of you said Stuart, like the name. Um, Not Stuart. We're not talking about Stuart this morning. We're talking about steward. Steward is a word that is very helpful to know if you're a Christian. That's why I want to use it, even though it's not really a word that we use much in our common uh, uh, language today. Steward uh, basically means to manage another's property, to take care of someone, something that belongs to someone else. So if you are a steward and uh, you're managing someone's property and that's your full-time job, it's, it would be very common to uh, have a portion of that property be used for your own living expenses and that would be expected. At the same time though, since you're managing someone else's property, you want to use it in a way that, that makes them happy. And you don't want to just simply squander it on all of your desires, right? And so as, as we think of what it means to be a Christian who has any possessions, whether that's $10 or $10,000, the Bible understands us in our own possessions as that of stewardship. We are stewards. We are managing not what is mine, but what is God's, something that we have in common with every other human that's ever existed, including those in Jesus' day, is that we tend to believe what is mine is mine. What's mine is mine. Uh, It's been given to me. I have it. I own it. I found it. I earned it. I deserve it. And when we have this mentality that what's mine is mine, we become clingy and brittle and stingy. And I'm going to tell you this right now. If we have a mindset that what's mine is mine, the more you have, the more clingy, stingy, and brittle you will become. But if it's God's, it's another story. If it's God's, we are now stewards. And we can be free, not just with our possessions, but it allows us to be free with our very relationships. Something I'm going to try to point out from this text is that an, a generous individual is generous in every aspect of their life. And it leads to joy. A stingy individual is stingy in every aspect of their life. We have a, a parable here. And Jesus uses this parable to kind of set up some additional teaching on stewardship. And it is a strange parable. I don't know if you really were able to follow along as I read it, but it's, it's, it's really, I think it's probably the weirdest parable we have in the Bible. We have the parable of the prodigal son just before it, which is like the greatest. And then we have this one. We're like, what does this mean? Well, let's try to break it down a little bit. Uh, it's actually not quite as confusing as it seems. There are a couple characters in the parable. There's a rich man. There's a manager who is his steward. There's a manager. And there are the debtors. So the rich man, back in these days, this is like before Sally Mae and before Bank of America and those that would give you loans. Back in these days, you would get your loan from the rich man in town. And so he's got all of these people that owe him money. It's just kind of part of their typical culture back then. And the manager would be particularly working for this rich man, and he's overseeing all of his various accounts. 
He's the one that's, that, that knows how much every single person owes. He's the one that determines to collect it, etc. Well, in verse 2, the, 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 the manager is uh, found to be wasting the rich man's resources. That word waste is actually the same word that's used in the prodigal son, which is just an interesting connection there. We're dealing with something uh, of a similar nature. The prodigal son wasted it in this way. We don't know exactly how this manager was wasting his resources, but there's a connection between these two parables. If only to say the prodigal son is a good story about what not to do with your resources. In some ways, we turn now and we're talking about what should we do with our resources? How, how do we think of the things that God has given us? Well, in this case, the manager is wasting his owner's resources, or the, the, the owner's resources, and the manager is going to get fired. That's, that sets the stage for our story. So, the, the owner comes, he lets the manager know, like, you got to go, you can no longer be my manager, you're not doing a good job with it. And so in verse 3, the manager starts thinking about, like, okay, what are my options? I'm now unemployed. Or I'm soon going to be unemployed. What are my options? I could dig, but, but I'm not strong enough to do that work. He may have been elderly. He says to himself, I could beg, but I'm too proud for that. What am I going to do? And then in verse 4, you see where it says, I have decided what to do? In the original language, that would better be translated as, I got it. Like the light bulb goes off. All of a sudden, he sees his plan before him. Remember in verse 2, when he gets fired, the manager tells, or the, the uh, rich man tells the manager, turn in the account of your management. This is his final task he's been given. What does this mean, practically speaking? It means that he has to meet with all of his, the individual debtors, and determine exactly what everybody owes, and then he's going to take that information to the owner. Well, here is the big light bulb that goes off. I've got to meet with all these people one-on-one. As soon as I'm done here, I'm going to be unemployed, and I'm going to have no place to live. If I can figure out some way to cause people to give me a good bit of sympathy, if I can figure out some way to win the hearts of some people, I can move in with them for the rest of my life, and I'll be set. So here's what he does. This is the big aha that he has. He begins meeting with the debtors one by one, and in, uh, in, in, in verse, uh, verse 6, he meets with the first, and he asks, how much do you owe my master? In verse 6, this first debtor owes 100 measures of oil. That's about 875 gallons of oil. That's a lot of oil. And so the manager says, take your bill and cut it in half. Knock it down to 50. That's what you owe now. That's a way to get on somebody's good side, isn't it? He goes to the next one, one one-on-one meetings here. The second one in verse 8, or verse 7 rather. How much do you owe the master? I owe him a hundred measures of wheat. That's about a thousand bushels of wheat. Again, that's a lot of wheat. He says, all right, knock 20% off and just pay the rest. He's getting on people's good side here. Now, this is where it gets weird. In verse 8, the master shows up, and it says the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Well, we have to assume, first of all, that whatever this manager is doing, he's doing it legally. Otherwise, there's no way he could get commended. He would be killed. The scholars say there's a number of different options here. It could be that uh, that the master was overcharging what people owed, and he was bringing it down to the actual price. Therefore, he puts the master in this really strange situation to where he can't continue to force an overcharge. He has to say, "Uh, that's right, that's correct publicly. 
It could also be that he knocked off the interest, which actually fits within Judaism. That you could take, take away the interest, and that was a good thing to do for your fellow Jews. And so again, he's putting, putting the master into this awkward corner of having to commend him for doing, for doing good. It made the master look good, essentially. We don't know exactly how he's knocking off some money here. But whatever he does, it fits. And he puts this master, I think the tone of the master is not like, man, I'm so happy with you. I think he's probably annoyed with this guy. I think he's glad that he fired him. And he's wishing that he would get out of his life. And he says, you rascal, that's pretty cool. Like, that's actually pretty sweet, what you just did there. Like, I hate you for it. You're bringing me a whole lot less money. But that was pretty amazing. And so then, the point of it is, is sort of clear in verse 8. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons, the sons of light. So, so what he's saying here is, is that those who are uh, worldly, those who are out going after their own worldly desires, they're, they're, they're doing a better job at figuring things out and being creative than you guys are going after the things of God. Another way to put it, to use a modern-day analogy, would be the hustler on the corner is more creative in what he's doing than the, the children of God are handling what we've been given, promoting things of eternity. I think what he's doing is he's saying, look at the shrewdness of the world and let that first bring you just a little bit of shame for how much we lack in our creativity with the resources that we've been given. They do a better job than we do. Man, I've always said revival will happen in Baltimore when all of the hustlers get saved and use that same creativity for things that are eternal as opposed to things that are temporal. The problem is so often after our salvation we get lazy and we just kind of assimilate into church culture and we forget how we used to be so creative when we were trying to get away with sin. Right? I think that's the point of the passage here, or the point of the parable. God has, God has given us a certain amount of resources. And some of you might say, well, he hasn't given me much. We're going to talk about that. But all of us, if we are living and breathing, we have some kind of resource that God has given us. The call as a Christian is to be faithful with the little or the lot that God has given to us. And not only be faithful, but I think we have an interesting picture here to be shrewd, to be wise, to be creative, to kind of be, get a little crazy at times, figuring out ways to use what God has given you for eternal benefits. So what does it look like then to be faithful with what God has given you? What does it look like to be a faithful steward? Well, this parable leads directly to some application, which is nice when you're trying to preach. What does it look like to be faithful? At first, it looks like in verse 9 to be faithful with my giving. To be faithful with my giving. I want to use a uh, contrast here to kind of make a point before we get into verse 9. Howard Hughes, uh, back in the day, he was this party animal, a pleasure seeker, and he was known to have a, quote, aversion to giving, unquote. He did not like to give. 
He had inherited a good bit of money from his father, and he was able over many years to turn that into a massive amount of wealth. And the older he got, the more close-fisted Howard became, the stingier he became. He became selfish and very self-centered. He essentially, his wealth built a barrier between him and other people. And when he died, he died hopeless and a miserable recluse. Contrast that with another man named George Mueller. George Mueller also inherited a good bit of wealth. But instead of being stingy, he was a giver. George Mueller, if you know anything about him, some of you kind of gave me a familiar nod. What you know about George Mueller is that he was one generous dude who shared in our, what we would call today, millions and millions of dollars he gave away. He lived off of a meager income and gave away millions throughout his lifetime. He had a lifelong pattern of generosity, serving the needs of other people. He was not stingy. He was not selfish. He was not self-centered. As a matter of fact, he used what he could raise and bring in to his own pockets. He used that to build orphanages, and he had hundreds of orphans who called him father. And he died with joy, with fulfillment, with relationships, with meaning, with purpose, contentment in his life. The giving person is generous in all aspects of their life. The stingy individual is stingy in all aspects of their life. Look at verse 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. So, I sat at my desk for about an hour like this, looking at verse 9. And then Eric comes in. He's like, hey, how you doing? I'm like, just working my sermon. It's a weird verse. So the parable's debated. What's more debated is verse 9, the application. Let me, let me give it my best shot here. I tell you, make friends. Okay, we got that part. For yourselves, okay, I'm tracking with you, by means of unrighteous wealth. It could be a uh, synonymous with worldly wealth. According to the Jews, they had this distinction between true wealth and false wealth. True wealth was eternal, it was spiritual, it was stored in heaven, as Jesus taught, and, and false wealth was wealth that you would accumulate here on earth. It could be that he's saying, uh, use, make friends through the use of your false wealth, through the use of your unrighteous wealth, through the use of worldly gain. Well, how do you make friends, help me out here, how do you make friends with money? You give money to people. <laughs> uh, that's kind of, it seems a little uh, shallow at first. But here's the thing, though. Remember, a generous person is generous in all aspects of life. So I don't think this is just simply a, hey, I'm going to buy you my friendship. Like, that's weird. That's just somebody who's, who's trying too hard to make friends, and they have, somehow have a lot of money. But he's, but he's saying, though, like, be a generous individual. Like, generous people do tend to have a lot of friends, and it's not because they're just, it's just because they love, and love is generous. Does that make sense? So they love well. Okay. So that when it fails, okay, we can track here with this. Uh, when it fails, uh, worldly wealth will one day fail you. This is good to keep in mind. Amen? Like when you stand before God on that day, nobody around, just you and God. What good is that $20 in your pocket? It will fail you. He doesn't care what clothes you're wearing on that day. 
He doesn't care how nice your house or your car is on that day. Sure, others currently temporarily do, but it will fail you one day. So, make friends for yourself through unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Again, kind of strange. Who's they? It could be that he's referring to the people that you made friends on earth through your generosity and that they are somehow the gatekeepers of eternity and they're going to let you in. But that doesn't seem to add up with the rest of what we know in the Bible. It could be that this is sort of a, uh, a, a, an echo back to some of other, Jesus' other teaching. If you give to the least of these, you give to me. And so they would be a reference for Christ, and Christ is letting you into heaven as the gatekeeper. It could be that they is a reference to God. The Jews would use the pronoun they to reference God when they didn't want to use the name of God. So you see this often in Jewish liter literature. So it could be saying, saying that you live this generous lifestyle, God will receive you into, in, into heaven. So what does it mean? I don't know. <laughs> it's probably something like I just described, all right? That's my best effort at verse 9. Can we move on to verse 10? Um, let me say this, though. I think the general application is clear, and that's generosity. That's, what he's saying is, is be a generous individual. Be faithful. What does it look like to be faithful with what God's given you? Be faithful in your generosity. Be faithful in, 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 in giving uh, to help the cause, whatever the cause might be. In other words, your generosity testifies to your eternal standing. Your generosity testifies to your eternal standing. Does this mean that you being a generous individual earns you a place in eternity? Well, absolutely not. But this is similar to where Jesus teaches, forgive others so that you are forgiven. Meaning, uh, as you live a generous lifestyle, you're testifying to where your hope actually is. You're making a statement about where your home actually is. You know, the reason many of us are prone towards stinginess is really because of fear, if we're going to get down to the bottom of it. We're afraid that we're not going to have enough. We're afraid that we might give this away, but then all of a sudden tomorrow get caught with some need that we weren't expecting. We're afraid that we might not have enough food one day. We're afraid that we might not have enough money for the mortgage or for the rent. We're, we're driven by fear. This is actually not a good thing. The man who is driven by fear builds barns and says, I'm going to store everything in my barn so that I will not have anything to worry about in life. And God says, ah, you fool, this day your life is going to be required of you. You see, when we think that the manna that we've been given is meant to be for tomorrow as well and for the rest of the day, we're, we're, we're not understanding the way God works. Now, I'm not saying don't ever save. We've talked about this before. I'm not going to get into it. There's wisdom in using your resources to save for the future, and that's very biblical. But there's a difference between being driven by fear and being clingy, stingy, and self-centered. Or, what does the gospel lead us to? The gospel destroys fear in our life. If your hope is in heaven through the grace of Jesus Christ, if your hope is in heaven, then what do you have to fear, church, on earth? I mean, what's the worst that could happen to you? You say, well, I could die. Exactly. Your hope is in heaven. Like, death is actually not the worst thing that can happen to a human being. The worst thing that could happen is to have no hope beyond death, but the gospel destroys our fear. And so then, therefore, we understand that God is the giver of all good gifts. God is the owner of all things, which means if you give something away today and you're confronted with a need tomorrow, don't you think the owner of all things knew that when you gave today that you were going to have a need tomorrow? And don't you think that he will provide? 
And so our earthly resources then are used as an investment in heavenly realities. That's the way we should primarily see them. I think this idea of winning friends is really this idea of, of being relational, being generous in our relationships uh, with others. When, I've already said this three or four times, but when you're generous with your money, you're generous with all relationships. When, when you're a generous individual, even in the church, we're, when we, when we uh, mistake one another or when we uh, hurt one another accidentally or when we say something slightly doctrinally off, or when we say something that's uh, slightly offensive, we, we can, church, we can be generous with each other. Like, generosity is not just what you do with your wallet, it's how you interact with your, the people around you. Are you generous? Are you a generous individual? Would generosity be a mark of who you are in Christ? Secondly, so faithful in, in, in our giving, but secondly, we must be faithful with a little, or the little, the little bit that you have. Be faithful with a little. Suppose you go up to Burger King, Burger King up the street here, and uh, you buy a two-for-five Whopper. And you hand them a $10 bill. How much cash should you get back? $5. You got good math, mathematicians in this church. <laughs> and the woman behind the register hands you $15 back. <laughs> hey. The Lord's provision? <laughs> Satan's temptation. What do you do? What do you do? Do you, do you take it and stick it in your pocket and walk out? Maybe you didn't know. Maybe you didn't realize it until you were in the parking lot. You made it out the doors. It's her fault. Like, I'm going to have to go all the way back in there. I'm not going to stand through that line again. What do you do? Let me give you another analogy. Someone, someone is working at Burger King. You've got a job there. Minimum wage. You're, you're, bring, you're working 45 hours a week and bringing in about 20000 a year. I don't know if that adds up with minimum wage, but just track with me for a second, all right? And you think to yourself, man, I would like to be generous, but I can't be generous with the little bit of money that I have. I'm not. Other people can be generous, but I'm not the generous. And I can't be generous. If I made 40000 a year, then I could be generous. And then you get a promotion, and you're a manager, and they give you 40000 a year. Get yourself an apartment, and you say, man, I, I, there's no way I could be generous off 40000 a year. I see that person, they're making 60000 a year. I'm sure I could be generous if I made 60000 a year. You get that job, 60000 a year. Man, I am so tight for money. I've got some credit card debt. If I made, made $100,000 a year, I know I could be generous with that. I would just, I'd, just give, I'd live off of 60 and give 40 away. And then you, you get a job that pays six digits, $100,000 a year. Do you guys know, listen, I'm not throwing anybody on the bus this morning. Right? I'm just saying I'm a pastor, and I do a lot of counseling. And over the years, some of the people who are stingiest with their money, who have the most debt, who don't know how to make ends meet, are people who are making over six digits. We just find ways to spend our money on us. And so what he says is this. Look at, look at the text in verse 10. He who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. 
If, if, if you've got a little bit of money and you're faithful with that, you're learning how to be generous with the little bit that you have, guess what, church? You are going to be generous when you have a lot, and praise God for that. And that's also something that I have seen in this church by God's grace. Um, but, and he goes on. If the one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in very much. You walk out of that Burger King with that $15, you made $10, you stole $10 from Burger King because of their fault. If you're faithful, if you're dishonest with $10, he's saying you're going to be dishonest with $10,000 as well. What's the point here? What's the application that we're chasing after here? Well, too many people have this mindset of, I wish I had more money so that I could do good. I don't really just want to be wealthy. I just want to be able to make a lot of difference in this world. And I think we say that with a good heart and good intentions and a lot of ignorance as to what it looks like to actually have more and more resources. Statistically, the people in America who are most generous are working class or middle class meaning you have some money to work with, but not a whole lot. They are statistically the people who give the most away and do the most good in society. Those that do, do the most good in society and in the church are probably people whose names you'll never know. They'll never make it into a magazine or on a billboard. They are just quiet, generous individuals. More is not greater than little. More is not greater than little. Be faithful with the little, Jesus says. Little, a little bit of resources is just as important as a lot of resources. It's not just those who have a lot of wealth that God will hold accountable. It's those who have a tiny little bit of resources. It's just as important. I could use our church positively as an example. Our church has little, and God allows us, I think, to do a lot with a little. Don't despise the little. Our church is supported, not mostly by people with a lot. Our church is mostly supported by people with a little. Don't despise the little. God can do much through you with your little bit of resources, with your little bit of money, with your little bit of income, with your little apartment, with your little family, with what you feel to be a little life. Church, let me encourage you. If you have little, you have an important amount. And God wants you to be a good steward with, with the little that you have. Thirdly, we must be faithful with other people's stuff. So first, we should be faithful in our giving. Secondly, as we apply this, we should be faithful with the little. And thirdly, we should be faithful when we're handling somebody else's stuff. Look at verse 12. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? We often think of this in the opposite way. We often think, if you're not faithful with your own, who's going to give you some of theirs? Jesus, interestingly enough, reverses that. And he says, if you're not faithful with somebody else's, why do you think you're going to be faithful with your own? I could use a couple analogies to make a point here. Suppose you want to start a deli. You like delis. You like deli sandwiches. And you want to start a deli. 
a little corner deli, not much. And so you ask somebody for a, a lender for a loan to start your little corner deli. And it just so happens that this lender actually has a deli and says, okay, why don't you come work at my deli? I'm going to teach you how to work a deli. I'm going to teach you the, the, the business side of things. I'm going to show you how to cut the meat. I'm going to show you how to make sandwiches. And, and, uh, and, and then I'm gonna, we can consider you having your own deli. And, and, and you never show up. When you do show up, you show up late. You don't learn how to properly slice the meat. He shows you how to make the sandwiches and you don't make them properly. And then he comes to you one day and you say, hey, are you going to give me my loan so I can start my own deli? The man says, why do you think you'll be okay with your own deli? You haven't been okay with my deli. And your response is, well, if I had my own deli, I would take it more seriously. <laughs> we laugh at that. But that's often the logic we use, church. Oh, if this was mine, I would handle it better. I, I've seen this over the years with seminary students. A seminary student who wants to be a pastor and doesn't talk to anybody, doesn't disciple anybody, is never sharing his faith with anybody. And the pastor comes to him one day and says, hey, uh, you know, I know you want to be a pastor, but I'm not seeing you pastor people. And he says, well, if I had my own church, I would. But this is your church. Jesus is right. If you don't prove yourself faithful with somebody else's stuff, then why do you think you'll be faithful with your own stuff? Now, not only is this practical, this is spiritual. Because I think what Jesus is getting at here is this issue of stewardship. Uh, remember, all that we own is owned by another. And so what he's saying is, is if you're not a faithful handling a, another human being's stuff, then why do you think you're going to be faithful stewarding God's stuff? Faithfully managing the things that belong to a spiritual being who you can't even see. How you handle someone else's goods, how you handle yourself when another individual is primarily responsible for the job, how you handle yourself when at the end of the day, you're not going to get any extra pay, you're not going to get any extra applause because this is somebody else's gig. How you handle yourself there shows your heart toward God because it's all a matter of stewardship. Are you with me? This is where Jesus leads us. He leads us to look not just simply at the practical stuff, but he leads us to look at our hearts, to examine our hearts. Verse 13, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Why is it that we are not a good steward of what God has given us. Some people might say, well, it's my bad habits. I need to correct my habits. Or it's my lack of knowledge. Or it's the lack of role models I've had in my life. What Jesus is saying is, is well, first of all, let me say this. Some of those things can contribute. Uh, lacking knowledge, lacking education, lacking that that's, can certainly contribute as to why you're not a good steward. But that's not the real issue. The real issue is this, is that you love money. It's actually not about your bad habits. It's about the fact that you find your happiness in stuff. You find your joy in what money can buy. That's the real issue. It's an issue not of the hands, but it's primarily an issue of 
the heart. Oh, can we just track back to the manager really quick in the story? The manager was failing with his master's stuff. He was wasting it. He was squandering it. And then as soon as it became self-centered, he got all creative and shrewd. He figured some things out. You see what the issue is? You can do it. You, you're smart enough. The issue is, is, is that we just fail to love our master appropriately. We love the things he can give us more than we love him. If you, if you, if you love money, then money becomes your God. And when money is your God, it clouds out any ability to be creative with the resources that God has given you to bless others eternally. However, if you love God, then we can understand that money is God's. Our resources are God's. And then we can use our resources in careful and creative ways to bless others. To help others. And primarily, to impact others eternally. Around World War II in London, there were orphans all over the streets. One of the biggest pieces of destruction that came out of World War II in England was, was all of these orphans. Parents that were, were dead from the war, lost. And uh, I read a story of a soldier who uh, was driving down the road and, and he saw an orphan with his nose up to the window, the glass of a pastry shop. And, and so the soldier pulls his car over and he notices inside the pastry shop the owner's making these donuts. And uh, here's this young boy salivating over these donuts. And so the soldier says, would you like one of those? And he says, absolutely. And so he, the soldier goes in and he buys the boy 12 donuts. And the boy looks at him and says, Mr., are you God? Well, I hope that the soldier said no. But, listen, there is something about generosity that looks a lot like God. We, church, we are created in God's image. We are created to look like God. We are created to reflect and display the beauty and the glory of God to the lost and dying world around us. Well, who is God? God is a God who so loved the world that He, finish it, he so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Listen, we had a sin problem. We have a sin problem. We had a real sin problem. And that sin problem was this. You were going to hell. Sin had brought upon us the curse, and the curse is death. We were destined to hell. We had a need for righteousness. And so what does God do for us? God gave His Son. Oh, we can go on. The Son comes and He does what? The Son gave His life for us. He, in two ways, every day of His life, He gave Himself away. He lived his life selflessly for the good of others. Physically and then spiritually, he gave his righteousness to us. His daily obedience before God was donated to us so that we might be declared righteous according to Romans. Not only did he give his life, but the Son gave himself in death. As he hung on the cross and he bore the punishment for our sin, for our stinginess, for our brittleness, for our lack of love for others, for our self-centeredness. Listen, all of that 
past, present, and future has been taken care of, so don't anybody walk out of here with guilt because you've been stingy. Jesus Christ died for your stinginess on the cross. Somebody better be saying amen and doing a lap around the sanctuary because that's really good news. In the resurrection, three days later, he rose from the dead and he calls us to turn from our sin and to trust in him. And all who trust in Jesus are forgiven of their sins and have the hope that they will one day be freed from the presence of sin, spending all of eternity in the presence of the Father who owns all things. That's our destination. And so then we live with this expectancy. We live with this generosity. We live with this desire to just simply reflect to the world who God is. Oh, in church, let's not just be generous with our money. Let's be generous with the gospel. Oh, how sad it would be if we walk out of here primarily wanting to give our money away and we share the gospel with no one. Let's give in such a way that allows us to be, have an opportunity to share the gospel. Let's be generous with this good news of Jesus Christ and tell somebody about him. Share him with the lost and the dying world all around us. Church, has God given you enough? Has he blessed you? Is, is what he's given you in salvation and then the basic needs of life right now, is it sufficient for you in this moment and can you trust him with tomorrow? Is the promise of eternal life enough? Let us be satisfied. Let us be content with exactly what God has given us and let us trust him with the things we feel we need that for some reason he hasn't given to us. And may we share these things with others. What a giver God is. What a Savior God is. What a generous God He is to shower us not only with forgiveness, not only with declared righteousness, but with blessings to live our lives and to share with others. Generosity has to do with two things. Number one, all that you have, all that you have, spiritually and physically, has been given to you by God. And number two, to whom much is given, much is required. Let's display him to the world. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for this parable. We thank you for the teaching that surrounds it. That we might be people who steward what you've given to us in ways that makes much of you throughout this society that we live in and beyond. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.